my name is Eric, and I welcome you to our Black Gay Diaspora podcast, where we, as LGBTQ plus citizens, come together to inspire and educate each other on who we are and our respective countries and professions. Through topics and guest interviews, our Black Gay Diaspora podcast celebrates individuals making a difference. Loving who we love is not a choice. Being who we're meant to be can be. We are here. You are welcome. We are community. I am joined by Cyril Enri. I'm going to ask him again if it's okay to make sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. A BAFTA-nominated British actor whose career spans over four decades, traversing stage, film, and television. As an accomplished theater actor, Cyril has performed in several productions with the Royal Shakespeare Company, a major British theater company based in Stratford-upon- Stratford-upon-Avon, yeah. Stratford-upon-Avon, thank you. Shakespeare's birthplace, yeah. Yes. Notable roles with the company include Lucius in the 1982 production of Julius Caesar, Ariel in the 1988 production of The Tempest, and Polonius in the 2016 production of Hamlet. Cyril earned his BAFTA nomination playing the character Lance Sullivan in Russell T. Davies' 2015 Channel 4 series Cucumber. With such a varied, rich, and celebrated career, which includes performing in the National Theater stage production of the Barbershop Chronicles at the Roundhouse, I am deeply appreciative that Cyril is taking time to speak with me on our Black Gay Diaspora podcast. If I was still pursuing acting, Cyril's career would be the blueprint with which I would challenge myself to use to go for it. Oh, wow. I look forward to hearing more about Mr. Enri's professional journey and what motivates him to be at the top of his game. Welcome. Oh, thank you. After that introduction, I better live up to it. Oh. <laughs> I'll just correct you on one thing. I didn't perform Barbershop at the Roundhouse. Oh, you didn't? Okay. That was a later cast. Ah, okay. I did the first year of Barbershop at the National, and we did it in Leeds, and then back at the National, and around a lot of places. I know the title, Barbershop, but what is the premise of the piece? Barbershop Chronicles was a piece that was put together through workshops at the National Theatre Studio with Inuar Elms, a Nigerian writer. And it was set in barbershops around the world, which sort of all come together on the day of a cup final. And as happens in barbershops all around the world, soccer is discussed. It was about those links in various countries, in Africa, in Britain, in London, it moved around. It moved around all over the place. And I suppose one of the central stories was that of my character, who was uncle to one of the young barbers in my barbershop set in London. That was basically what it was about, the relationships between those males. It studied the many conversations which men have with men, particularly intergenerationally. A lot of those things that you can discuss in a barbershop once you get past the layers of football and, you know, Muhammad Ali and, yeah, boxing. Yeah. It was a very good piece. It was surprised me that the barbershop is universal in the Black culture, regardless of where you're at. I first discovered that when I went to Sweden a few years ago. Yeah. It felt almost identical. Generally, Black barbershops are not viewed from an outside point of view. Mm -hmm. You don't get a lot of white males in them. 
That's true. You can speak freely. Well, you can speak relatively freely. I suppose as many young gay men will find, those shops come with a certain amount of bravado and can take on a lot of the homophobic elements that come with that sort of bravado of manhood. That can be quite difficult. I've known it to be when I have spoken out when somebody has said something that is homophobic. And of course, I got the reaction of, oh, oh God, yeah, the guy from the telly is being, you know, and I went, yeah, no, I'm not smiling. I'm not joking about it. Yeah. So occasionally you do have to stand up and say those things. Yeah. Well, it's good to hear that you're somebody who does that, who has the courage to do that. I suppose in some ways I'm slightly protected from some of the rubbish that would come my way because I'm a semi-known figure in certain communities. Yeah. Thank you for sharing about that piece. Definitely, as you mentioned, it's an important culture. It's an important space for Black men. I'm from Arizona. I lived in LA for years and I've been mostly away from there for a while. So every time I see sun and green, I'm just, <laughs> I'm not distracted, but it, it definitely adds to the whole look of things. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, this is where my mom was from. So I'm here as often as I can be, I suppose, which isn't very much, you know. And this is Barbados. This is Barbados, yeah. It's beautiful, yeah. I think it's important to try and keep those links, those links to your legacy, those links to your past, to nurture those. So it's important that I have a place here. And it's also important that I have a place in Nigeria. I have claims to many citizenships. (laughs) I'm lucky enough to be able to get to them. A citizen of the world. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I suppose so. And that also means that, yeah, I'm a citizen of nowhere as well. I suppose as an artist and as a black gay man, I can move from one place to another. Mm. Yeah. I experience the world from all angles. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would imagine as an artist, as a creative, being able to, to travel and work, that's helpful for your craft because you're absorbing all these different energies. I think it is. I think it's important to observe those different energies, but it's also much more important to observe yourself, your inner self. If you sit still in the places from which you have been given birth, in the places from whence you hail, a chance to explore who you are. Mm. And I think for a lot of gay men, at least, growing up in the societies we do, we can sometimes feel ostracized from those very communities because of the outside pressure of the world. So it's important to be able to claim those, say, I am part of this too. Like the Langston Hughes poem says, you know, I too am America. Mm. I too am Nigeria. I too am Barbados. I too am London. All those things apply. Even if you are As an artist, you observe from the outside those very societies in which you live so that you can 
offer a mirror up to them and I suppose be a catharsis to the human condition so you can sit outside and watch that and disseminate it in some way or another so that you can give back so that you can allow people to deal with those bigger questions that affect us all you know why are we here who do we love you know all those things that are at the core of us you know yeah sounds very therapeutic yeah I think it is I haven't been back to Nigeria in a while but um I know that there's something about, particularly from whence I hail there in the Southeast, there's something about that red earth that is unique. And if I sit there for long enough and breathe in and take in my uncles and aunts and elders and younger people, I will get a greater sense of who I am. And hopefully that will be reflected in whoever I play on stage, on screen, yeah, wherever. You mentioned Southeast, what city? Ibo, I'm Ibo originally, and from the Anambra state. My surname gives it away. Okay. The Unri people. One of the gifts, I think, as an American, of not being within that country is learning more about different places. Yeah, well, you're one of the few Americans that travel, by comparison with the size of the country. Yeah. Very, very few travel, really. I'd describe it as a, a big island. Yeah. Yeah. And they don't like to get off it that often. No. It can seem very insular, you know, when I'm there. Mm. You came onto my radar. I saw the Russell T. Davies series, Cucumber. And yeah, that was, for me, the first time I really became aware of you. And I'm not just saying this because I interviewed, but it was a great performance. Especially, I think, because you were playing a Black gay character. And then, too, I, I think as a performer was in the eyes. There was something in there where I just saw, or I felt that there was an inner life in there in your performance. Yeah, it was something that really drew me in. I'm not knocking any other performances I've seen of other actors. And, of course, there's other yeah. great Black actors. But in particular with you, I just really liked your performance and feeling your inner monologue, whatever that was. I definitely felt that I was connected to that character. Oh, thank you. I mean, it was a highlight for me to play that character. Russell T. Davis, who many will know from It's a Sin or Queer as Folk or Doctor Who or... The list goes on of Russell's brilliant writing and the worlds in which he just inhabits. I felt so privileged to be able to play that. Every so often you read a script and you go, I just want to be in this. And I'm very glad that I was playing Lance. To be honest, I would have played anything, <laughs> you know. In a way, in Queer as Folk or in It's Sin, He's dealing with a younger generation there. And what you really see on television is the middle-aged man, the middle-aged gay man going through all that stuff. What do you do when you split up, when you date at a late age in life, when those uncomfortable questions haven't been answered, when you discover dating, which is now mainly done on apps, you know, how do you traverse all that if you haven't dealt with who you are, really dealt with it? And what are we really looking for? Because there's a line of, I don't want to call it tyranny, that comes with 
living in the Western gay world, mm-hmm. where over a certain age, over a certain size, over a certain whatever, there's a policing of that. You have to fit into certain molds. People don't fit into molds. They just don't. You are going to be oversized. You are going to be middle-aged. You are not going to have sorted out all your shit. You are still occasionally going to be hankering after that ingenue that you wished you'd been with. And there's nothing strange in that. I did a Bernardo Bertolucci film a while back, Besieged, and I remember looking at you know a lot of his work. As you get with a Woody Allen, any of these guys... You keep telling this same story where you as a middle-aged blah, blah, whatever, or the character that is your protagonist, is hankering after really somebody who probably turned you down because you were the nerd at school. This ingenue female. And part of that. You can't keep doing this. You know, you need to sort your shit out and sort out who the hell you are. What happens if you're a gay man? You never got the guy that you fancied because it wasn't available to you. Not only did you probably have to hide who the hell you were, all that sort of stuff going on, you haven't sorted it out. And then you're left in this later stage. And even if one of you has sorted it out, what about the other? Although it wasn't mentioned that much, equally dealing with inter-race relationships in the gay community, Russell covered all that and more in this wonderful piece of writing. And he continues to do that. Mm. And when you talk about the characters in a life, I mean, even down to the music choices. I mean, I looked at the music that Russell had chosen to play within the series. He cites all these things in the script. Okay. I had a Lance playlist from his earliest days right through which was an easy sort of shorthand into who he was. There was a hell of a lot of the Eurythmics in Lance, which says something, you know, as a black gay man growing up in whatever Lance grew up with, with a father who obviously rejected him within the series and all the rest of it. And you see the result of that. And you look at how he'd placed himself. You know, we actually filmed in the bar where Russell met his ex-partner who's now passed on who he used to be a carer for they met in that bar and we shot the meeting of vincent's character and my character in that bar at that spot you know Mm -hmm. he touches on such brilliant stuff and it was a real pleasure to play it was also difficult i didn't want him being stereotypical in any way i didn't want him to come across as too camp to this, to that, any of those things that I call the tyranny of how we're meant to express gay men in the media. He had a full life behind him, I suppose. I think it was wonderful to be acknowledged. The fuss that happened afterwards, obviously, I didn't get the BAFTA. It was just such a joy to play. It was a brilliant thing to play. And it was very real. It talked about, particularly in Lance's story, you know, It talked about the violence, the bullying that can go on. You know, I used to be a patron of Gallup, a charity about domestic violence, particularly within the gay community. What do you do if you have these issues? I love the way that 
Michaela Cole dealt with it in I May Destroy You when you looked at the gay character going to the police station not quite knowing how to report the assault that had happened. People are now dealing with these issues. It's not just the camp gay character who you can dismiss the best friend of. You're actually going into detail and allowing these people to have a life, a proper inner, outer life. The reason for me being open about who I am is because there will be a child somewhere not in the centre of London, not in New York, not in West Hollywood, mm-hmm. who will not be able to say and be who they are, often on fear of huge violence and abuse. It's important for me to stand up and say, yeah, actually, you know what? You're okay. I have two kids. I had a long relationship with my ex, you know, the mother of my children. Mm. Yeah, I'm a gay man with kids, all the rest of it. Yes, I've slept with women. To find out who you are, you don't have to feel because you don't fit into a box that somebody else decides that you somehow don't have a voice. Right. I watched a documentary last night on Sidney Poitier. Okay. There's the line in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner where he's talking to his father and he says, you see yourself as a colored man and I see myself as a man. (laughs) It's an intergenerational chat and things have changed. I don't need to justify it. I am a man. I don't need to put any label on it to suit this person or that person. I'm not endangering them in any way. This is about the human condition and loving people. For me, those are the people that I plug into or the characters that I plug into because it gives me permission to say I can be human too. Or when I saw that particular series, becoming aware of getting older as a gay man and seeing that projected on film, it's like you don't always see it. As we get older, we need to see those images too. Even as a Black kid who read a reasonable amount, I got my education in Black literature later on. Hmm. It was mainly through my sister. It was what she was reading. And then I discovered, oh my God, there are people out here writing this stuff. (laughs) It's important to see that. And not just for the young. No. (laughs) There are so many older men and women who finally can go, okay, I can own who I am. You mentioned writing and directing. Have you done projects as a writer or director? I have, and I'm trying again at the moment. I'm not a Michaela who pops off eight weeks and writes a series. Hmm. I have been writing a series, and I keep coming back to it. Part of the difficulty is that I've got other work, so I will get on with that. You know, I try to take the job of putting across the characters that I do quite I suppose, with a certain amount of seriousness, there's a lot to be put into that effort each time. Do you have time when you're researching other things which are immediate, which are for now? I need to take that stuff in slowly but surely and make sure that I'm ready for the next thing. At the moment, I'm preparing to read an audio book when I get back, and then I start at the Young Vic on a play. I've got the research for that, and I'm also dipping in 
every so often when I'm not dealing with stuff for hair to doing more research for the series that I'm trying to write. Directing wise, yeah, I dabble every so often. That sounds like a busy schedule already. <laughs> I had planned to take a year off. Of work? Yeah, and I was going to travel. I was doing a show called Trouble in Mind at the National Theatre, and I'd planned to stop for a year after that. I had a week in New York, and then I was called back to London to do a pilot for a comedy series, which I did, and then I got a job in the prequel to Bridgerton. Hmm. So I went into that and then was doing that up until late last year and then went into a film. So I just haven't had the chance to um, do what I planned to do. So this month that I'm having at the moment, it was just enough free time. And I just thought, yeah, okay, well, I'm going to get out of Dodge as such and come to somewhere just a little quieter with sunshine and trees and family. And then I get back and I hit the ground running to do these other jobs. And then we will see after that job finishes in April at the Young Vic. And then we will see what will be. I apologize if I'm projecting, but I sense that you ride the wave of where the universe is guiding you. Um, yeah, a bit. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. If something new comes along, and it takes me off in that direction, then I'll go off in that direction. I think it's important to not try and fix too much. Let life be life. As I was always told, don't help God with the sun. He's been putting it out for years. He doesn't need your help. <laughs> you know, so, you know. like <laughs> Release the pressure. <laughs> it's not my job to fix it all. You brought up trouble in mind, that performance, that piece. Your character in that was dealing with prejudice in the 1950s. Yeah. Being fortunate to have the career that you've had. What has changed since the beginning of your career with now, with specifically being a Black actor? There's more of us. <laughs> yeah. There's more of us doing it and getting recognized for it. When I went to drama school, there was one Black guy, maybe one Black girl in each year. There were only three years of the course. And then when I went to the RSC, to the Royal Shakespeare Company, you know, there were a few and far between. So that's changed a lot. Mm -hmm. I like to hope. And occasionally I hear from others that just being an example of staying power allowed them to come into the profession. It's possible. I could do that. In the same way that as a kid watching Sidney Poitier or any of those guys made me think, wow, maybe that's a possibility. So did you always know you wanted to be a professional actor? I suppose there were inklings of it, but it happened towards the end of secondary school. Yeah, I sort of knew because I got into a school play. I initially went along because I knew I would miss double maths at the end of the week because the drama group met during that last session of maths and I got the lead. That was great. <laughs> you know? I knew pretty much within that that this was what I wanted to do and I joined lots of youth theatres. I was a member of four youth theatres per week. Admitted. 
or focus, it sounds like. Yeah. And then I went to drama school, to the Bristol Old Vic School after. Well, you've done a lot of theatre. Was that your focus only in the beginning? Yeah, but I don't know whether that was by choice or the fact that in my day, (laughs) we weren't really getting those opportunities a lot to do TV or film. Because I had sort of slipped into the RSC, to the Royal Shakespeare Company, and then on to the Royal Exchange and then the Royal Court. It's very easy for casting directors to go, oh, yeah, that's what he does. Yeah. And then they dismiss everything else. You have to consciously step out of whatever they are casting you in. Mm. So I've tried to do that over the years. For a while, at the very beginning, oh, that's the black guy who does Shakespeare. And then, oh, he did a musical. Okay, another musical. Okay, got to step out of that one too. Oh, right, so he does comedy. Okay, yeah. Oh, well, he's back at the Royal Court. Oh, yeah, he's a Royal Court actor. Then you go, yeah, no, I'm not, none of these things. The label is on the cat, actor. So don't put me in a box. I've never wanted to be boxed by anybody. You know, I don't want to be told, oh, yeah, that's the gay actor, or that's the black actor, or that's the the guy who does Shakespeare. It's what is the next challenge? Am I a little scared when I approach it? Do I have no idea as to how I'm going to approach it? Yeah, that's great. Okay, let's do that. Mm, Okay, lean into it. Yeah, lean into the fear. Yeah. Trouble in mind, I love doing that job. A really complex character. When we see this guy, we know he's been ill. We know he can't afford his rent. He's actually living on the street at this point, going from couch to couch when we first meet him. He needs that job. He hasn't got time to be allowing others through their wokeism, through them fighting for rights to get in the way of him being fed he not only is a fighter but he's also willing to go yeah actually you know what that's all very well but you cost us a job and he's the only character in that play who's actually seen a lynching he's the only character who's actually picked cotton so he knows where he's come from by his standards Standing on a stage and saying a few lines is easy. And he gets to describe that later on. It was a wonderful, wonderful part to be allowed to play. I hope I did it justice. It's been really interesting. When we did Barbershop, Mm. you know, it was hailed all over the place. And yet it didn't win one award. When we did Julius Caesar at Stratford, an all-black Julius Caesar, which I think was initially the RSC ticking a box rather than truly feeling it. But it was a wonderful production, and it was hailed worldwide. Didn't win anything. And I look at it and I go, okay, that's really interesting. What I find with that is that when history is looked back on, they will only remember the ones in the winning position. They won't remember the also rounds. So it's a sort of way of writing us out of history. Has that changed over the years? I suppose a little. Yeah, it's interesting. But there's tenacity and there's that staying power. I would say the biggest awards are actually still being here after 40 years. <laughs> so, you know, it's the Michael Bryants. There are four dressing rooms at the National 
theatre that have names on them. All the rest are just numbers. Mm -hmm. Michael Bryant, Judy Dench, I can't remember the others. Michael was one of those, he was an actor's actor. He was detailed, was never interested in being a star. Chuitel was in it, Chuitel Adiofo was in that dressing room before I had it. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, Cyril, you finally made it. You're in Michael Bryant's dressing room. It's the one with the bathtub as well. In the dressing room. <laughs> as opposed to a shower. Oh, I see. For me, that was, wow, okay, here I am, following in the footsteps of somebody who just really did the art. Not that I don't look to the guys that are up there, you know, in the echelons getting the kudos. That's what I think the art of being an actor, the art of storytelling is all about. It's being the griot, the griot of the village in the intellectual kernel of the piece and in the emotional kernel of the piece. You also were in Hamlet. That was an all-Black performance. And it was also, they changed the location of it from Northern Europe to Western Africa. The praise that came around that. Again, brilliant. You know, you had Papa, Papa S.E.A., who is doing all the stuff coming along, and he is a brilliant actor. I mean, that was lauded as a production. I do have a theory that Shakespeare generally is more viscerally, emotionally, and intellectually performed on an African plane because within the continent of Africa, people still, as in Shakespeare's day, believe very much in gods, kings, and men mm -hmm. on all those levels. There is no difficulty with the spirituality of that. I'm not talking about, you know, belief in some sort of Judeo-Christian God. But in terms of gods, kings, and men, a higher being, the right of kings, with all their fallibilities, and men on the street, the groundlings, there is definitely an easy shortcut language which happens within those societies, which is still very apparent. And it hasn't lost what a lot of the West has lost in terms of being able to keep those three planes very alive and visceral. I'm not saying that isn't there within the West. It is. But I think it's a much easier shorthand. Any great piece of writing is universal and doesn't recognize borders. It deals with the human condition and Shakespeare dealt with the human condition. With your career, you know, we've mentioned a few projects and stage and TV, and then you're also known connection to television for the uh, character Adam O'Caro yeah. for the Bill superintendent. How do you go about choosing a role? Because all these characters to me seem to be unique in that I see them as, as three-dimensional people. Hopefully that comes with me. Yeah, <laughs> like, oh, true, very true. <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, I'm not one of those actors who can go, oh, yeah, I chose where my career went. There are lots and lots and lots of times when I go, oh, that's weird. Everybody was seen for that. I wasn't. I don't know whether that's to do with them not thinking I have the ability to do that particular part or whether there's some homophobia or prejudice, doesn't really matter. With the bill, it came along. Paul Marquis 
who was in charge of the bill at that point, gay writer, producer, he took over the bill. It was going down at that point. And his first thing, I think, was he phoned up Diane Parrish and said, would you like to be in the bill? Black actress who's now in EastEnders and offered her a job as a detective. Then I think he saw about three or four of us for the character of Adam, the new superintendent. And I remember there was some objection to him doing that at the time. But, you know, he'd done his research. He loves television, like a lot of these great writers. Like Shakespeare, they know what they're dealing with. They know how to write characters who are alive. And a lot of them trained on Coronation Street and those sorts of programs. And he thought, this needs a shake-up. And there were black superintendents and chief constables. But I knew a few of them. Mm -hmm. And so when I went up for that, yeah, I wanted it. And it was good to be able to play that. I'm not a natural policeman, but although I spent a long time playing people in the law, you know, from barrister in this life to judge in Law and Order UK to, you know, all those sorts of things and various policemen. In fact, I was a policeman in the Who Shot Phil storyline of EastEnders investigating that. And equally, things got changed. His surname, Okearo or Okaro, was Nigerian. I remember being offered the bill early on, early on in my career, as lots of actors were. It was one of those programs where you cut your teeth, great guests, and you had good little storylines. But there were equally bits of writing, which when I was first around, <laughs> you would get what I would call stupid black villains. Mm. I don't mind playing a villain. Love to play a villain, but I don't want to be stupid. <laughs> you're going to play a stupid villain you don't naturally make them dumb because they're black oh uh, yeah yeah certainly yeah why would he revisit that scene when he knows there are policemen there no he wouldn't do that and he wouldn't go back stop writing them as though he's an idiot now if he's a clever villain love to play him it's the same as being asked to play, as I was recently, asked to play a serial killer. I had a look. He seems to be in the dark. He has about six, seven scenes based on a true case. He got away with this for years and years and years. And you haven't covered any of that. What you have is you have a man in a balaclava. You have various nighttime scenes with him occasionally being shuffly seen in the background and then one or two scenes where he's interviewed not very extensively from his point of view it's all about the policeman this isn't a character he's a cipher it's rubbish and i won't play that so yeah i do have some choice the only choice i have is to say no given the parts that i'm offered i suppose i could look across careers of others who have been as lucky to be in the positions that I have been and go, oh, yeah, I see where their career went upwards and took off. Mm -hmm. And generally, I go back to the beginning and start again. And, you know, I've been auditioned for everything I've ever done, I think, pretty much. Yeah, there have been a couple of offers, but those are small, independent little things, you know, short films and whatever, which people have asked me to do. My example is that, you know, 
shortly after getting the BAFTA nomination, <laughs> one TV series asked whether I could come in for a two-scene character and audition. And my agent said, um, do you realise he's just been nominated for a BAFTA? And they went, yeah, yeah, but yeah, well, when you're asking Sean Bean or somebody else to come in and audition for a two-scene character, then Cyril will be in. <laughs> and that's not just a black thing or a gay thing or whatever. That happens to a lot of actors. I know as a voiceover artist and as a theater actor that you do different accents and different dialects and you can do an American accent. Are you open to working in Hollywood? I'm open to working anywhere as long as the work is good work. I'm green carded. When I'm in the States, I tend to live in New York. It's a real city. <laughs> Nothing against LA. I know you used to live there. No, I agree. I have family in New York, and if I could choose, I would choose New York. It has seasons. It has a center. LA and Las Vegas seem to me to be plonked in the desert. Like Phoenix, where I'm from, yeah. I always feel like nature is going to take these places back eventually. <laughs> you all stop messing around. Nature's coming. <laughs> it's not wasting any time on you. Because, yeah, 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 you're going to play the game. Shine the lights, all that sort of shit. And those mountain lions need their mountains back. <laughs> yeah, they need them back. I always feel quite lonely in L.A., even when I'm surrounded by people. Yeah. It's an interesting city. You know, for me, being nomadic these last three years in Europe... And for the first time, not driving. New York is aggressive and all that, but it still feels friendlier than L.A. I'll say that. You can walk. It's more honest. Yeah. People will tell you shit there. Be prepared. Yes. <laughs> be prepared to be told. <laughs> yeah. Speed up. What the hell are you waiting for? Get off the goddamn sidewalk. I had a quick question around accents. Because you're British and so many Brits can do American accents. What's the secret? <laughs> and we can't really do it, an English accent. I don't know. Some can. It's just study. I think it's just study. It's applying the craft. I think we're more technical about stuff. It's partly because it's a much more cinema and TV trained society in America. Mm -hmm. Whereas the theater, you have to repeat that discipline on a nightly basis. You've got to learn your chops. You don't expect to pick up the trumpet and be Louis Armstrong. You've got to practice that shit. You know? yeah. <laughs> when I look at someone like Daniel Kaluuya, brilliant at getting not just generic American, it's area specific. I go, wow, Daniel does the work. American actors work really hard but they work in the method stroke meisner stroke what am i feeling not that we don't incorporate all of that stuff but there is also the technical aspect of what is my breath doing then what am i doing here mm -hmm. where is my tongue at this moment in time you know can i practice that it's like when you all say the word literally uh -huh. you get rid of the r I'm more aware of accents now that I'm not in the U.S. I'm more aware of American accents, and I wasn't really before. But now that I'm not there, if I hear an American accent around me, I'm like, 
Ooh, that's very specific. Well, America's a big place. It's difficult, particularly with the African-American ones, because what used to be very South influence has now changed into all these, yeah, you know, Black Valley girl. (laughs) It's very different from a New York. Yeah. But I don't actually think we're better at it than Americans. Okay. You get to hear about the Breaking Bads. You get to hear about the White Lotus. But in between all that, there are hundreds of average, if not terrible, attempts that are out there. Well, to my ear, your New York accent sounds good. (laughs) Oh, well, I don't know. (laughs) It's okay for a line or two. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. Oh, I thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. I hope that was interesting. I thought I got a bit technical there. <laughs> no, no. I mean, for me, as like I said, I studied theater for a minute, and that's why I moved to LA. But uh, just hearing your processes and and just your career, it's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's often interesting to find out. Just to come back to process with Cassius. Just reading through that, I remember thinking, okay, and I went and asked a doctor about some of the symptoms that he seems to show. And I worked out that Shakespeare had written a manic depressive before we knew what a manic depressive was. And so I looked at that and attributed all that stuff to the character and it worked Hmm. in terms of looking at it in a new, fresh light. And it explained a lot of his behavior. So yeah, I think it's often important, you know, we look at the stuff behind the character. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Same here. And I'm sorry about the background. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that. Just the visuals, the greens are just gorgeous. And so, no, thank you. <laughs> oh, not at all, not at all. So is this like a family home, like an ancestral home? Yeah, well, it was my mom's, and now it's the four of us kids. That's good, it stayed in the family. Yeah, that intergenerational wealth thing, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's very important to keep that going. You know, to come back to that thing of being on the soil where you were born, where you hail from. Mm. There's something about the earth and having a place there. Thank you for spending time with us. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment, and subscribe. Share with your friends, too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Our Black Gay Diaspora and on Twitter at BLK Gay Diaspora. Until next time.